0: Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngarziwala and Obehi Alifoje. Let's get this rebellion started. Phil Jones is the Managing Director of Brother UK, an information, communication and technology business supplying products and services to hundreds of thousands of UK enterprises. He started as a fax salesperson, a brother, in 1994, and he's worked his way up through the business to be appointed its leader back in 2013. He's an accomplished speaker and regularly shares his views around leadership and workplace culture. Phil was awarded an MBE back in June 2016 in the Queen's Birthday Honours List for his services to business. He's a fellow of the Institute of Directors and a companion of the Chartered Management Institute among a list of other very notable business accolades. He describes himself as a practivational speaker, someone who's keen to provide practical insights and actionable outcomes. I know that he takes the business of mental health and well-being being a key part of an organization's culture and part of the very fabric of a business's success very, very seriously. I know that he has lots of practical ways in which companies can engage their employees and make mental health and well-being work for everybody. So, Rebels, are you ready to listen and learn? Let's begin. Hi, Phil.
1: Thank you so much for joining
0: us on the Wellbeing Rebellion.
1: Thanks ever so much for having me and guys. I'm a big fan already. I've been listening to Yay. lots of your podcasts uh, with you and Obehi when I'm walking the dog at the weekend. So, uh, yeah, I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. So let's just dive in because I know you've got so much to share with our audience about how you can create a culture that really promotes good mental health and well-being. So I don't want to um, spend too long with niceties, Um, But I did want to ask you personally about your own mental health and whether there has ever been a time that you've struggled with it.
1: I I think I've got great coping mechanisms after sort of almost 20 years' worth of self-development, self-awareness in Ghazi. However, your, your question really made me reflect about the severe load I think I was under during the pandemic period. Um, particularly in the first six months of the pandemic and, and it wasn't simply that we had a very complex environment uh, to deal with in our professional capacity but I had a lot going on at home as well. My wife had uh, lost both of her par- parents so we had a lot of bereavement in, in the home and um, it was a very very difficult period for me because there was a huge amount of not only professional load but personal load so when we talk about things like our stress buckets my my pretty full during those periods. And thank goodness I had the coping mechanisms to be able to deal with that.
0: And what were they?
1: Well, a little self-designed one. I'm I'm sorry for using an acronym quickly. Um, However, uh, I use something that I call my desk policy. And what I mean by that is um, to focus on three of at least of the following four things, which is diet, exercise, sleep, and kindness, brackets to self, close brackets, so to be really aware all the time of the load that you're under. So, um, pilots would call this situational awareness. You know, how am I today? Being able to check in with yourself, and when you know that you're under load, to sort of make sure you're doing good, disciplined things, and keeping perspective going to bed early, giving your brain the chance to process all of the things that it's having to process, and just basically getting out and, and also you know letting the biology of your body do the things it can do in order to rebalance you. So that little desk policy was, I guess, my saviour. Uh, lots of hours on the bike, um, you know, plenty of sleep, uh, trying to reduce alcohol intake uh, substantially because it's easy to have a glass of wine every night under such load, right? Um, so just being very, very conscious about those things and, and, and needing to self-care.
0: I really like it because it's very straightforward and, and easy to remember, only four letters. And for those of us with terrible memories, that helps. And it, it's also aligned with um, the NEF's Five Ways of Wellbeing, which does have an element of looking after your physical health as well. Um, so it makes perfect sense but it must be really difficult for you to do when you're the CEO of a, of a large organization in this UK there are over how many people work for brother UK it's over 115 yeah we actually have 151 yeah that was, that was a good guess wasn't it well, very good. You have so many people that you are responsible for getting sleep and having time for exercise it must be really tricky
1: yes it requires a great degree of uh, you know self-management, and uh, that I'm a very organized person, fundamentally, and you know, you've got to really prioritize, I think, if you want to lead a business, you have got to be organized. You, you simply cannot not be organized, and you've got to be protective of your diary, and you have to plan things in your diary. So one of the things that, that I definitely do as good practice is deploy something that I call out on in which is I try and spend about a third of my time out of the business, a third of my time on the business, and a third of my time in the business. Uh, And what I mean by that is out, learning new things, inhaling the world, seeing new trends, seeing our customers, going to conferences or networking. The on element of that is just then having... Learned those things, coming back and understanding how you might need to tweak your own business to uh, take account of those new trends that you may have seen and then the in bit is that 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 last bit is the very very important bit it's the winning the hearts and minds with your people, so if you need to make changes. Because of strategic um, you know, disalignment, let's say, with, with what you currently think you want to do, but the market's moving somewhere else. You have to make changes in the organisation. So it's very important as part of that change management process that you also spend time with people to explain the why behind your changing, not just the what.
0: I think that's such an overlooked but fundamental part of any change management process is Winning people over to the reason behind the need for the change, and if you don't do that, then it's so easy for people to either disregard the importance of it or be sceptical about your motivation. So, uh, I love that you're saying this.
1: One other thing, actually, I will just mention, which if it's a, if it helps anybody, one of the things that I really, really uh, am very disciplined about is something I call horizon planning. My diary, so looking out for three to six months. And understanding where my loads and stress points will be, and making sure that I'm designing in rest and recovery time um, when under peak load. So particularly now, as we come towards the end of March and into April, I am in my busiest time of the year. There's no doubt. We've got financial year end. We move straight into kick off the new financial year, and then of course we've got to deal with the auditors and the statutory accounts. That's a really big job. So I know this. You know, during this six week period. I'm under immense load, so I I will just make sure that again I'm caring for myself. But actually, after this pain period is over, that I have some recuperation time—a good few days, not just a quick, you know, go to bed early in one day. And there's a real big difference, in my opinion, between recovery and recuperation. You know, recovery is just that quick, yeah. You know, get reset for the next day. Recuperation is is that ability to totally rest and come back refreshed and re-energized for that next period ahead.
0: That idea of prioritizing rest is so important. I know I'm someone who is guilty of always sacrificing recuperation time in order to get more done. So what made you embark on this journey of creating a well-being culture at Brother UK?
1: Yeah, that's a a really interesting question because um, I think when I first became MD here, which was back in 2013, I had been with the company for nearly 30 years now in Ghazi and I joined as a salesperson effectively and lucky me was able to work my way up and, and, and fundamentally then get to the top seat. And so over all the years you know previous to becoming the MD, I'd seen kind of what sometimes what bad looks like, um, what good look what good looks like because I worked for a number of different bosses over the years. And what I thought was, was, you know, well, if I ever got to that particular sea, there's quite a lot I'd like to change. And there was a lot of really good, great stuff going on here, but it just wasn't very well organized. So we had a great culture, for example, but no one could really describe why. Um, What was it about our culture that made it quite unique, for example? So I, I made a determined effort to, A, firstly begin to, I don't know, package up Perhaps the good things about our organisation, um, so that we could present ourselves better to our people and to perhaps people who wanted to join us, and that really started the ball rolling. And of course, you know, I've got a lived experience where I, you know, I've had uh, you know mental health omnipresent in my life through various family members going right the way back to my grandmother, and uh, I've also seen friends and uh, and people that I've worked with suffer with uh, mental health issues over the years. And it sort of struck me that this was was something, you know, going back 10 years ago, we were still in this horrible taboo space, weren't we, where it wasn't seen to be um, a good thing to own up and all, all of these types of things. You know, it's awful. awful. Um, but I wanted to really sort of be a change agent in all of that and to make sure that we treated uh, well-being, you know, across that entire spectrum, I guess, um, whichever bit of well-being you look at with equality so effectively we understood that mental health is as important as physical health and so we started you know we started and we, we made steps and we began to do some things and um, I think my big my big message here is these things take so much time they they take consistent effort over time you must continually be building and making small steps so even if you've only moved a millimeter that's better than nothing when it comes to initiatives around people's well-being so over time I guess this has just snowballed and gathered momentum uh, in order that we we are here now and we're in a good place whereby people do understand in our organization that um, if you are struggling with your mental health resources are available uh, that you can access very easily um, to help you.
0: So what steps did you take?
1: Yeah well in the early days, what I realised was there was um, quite a lot of things going on uh, where people would perhaps take route one straight into what we called HR back in the day, because they might be having um, high sickness. It was all about a break, fix, intervention in Gazi. And you know, in my view, that's you know, it's fine to start there to start signposting people, uh, you know, providing counselling services. For example, was one of the things we did in the early days. If somebody was struggling, we we made sure we actually had a not just signposting to external resources. We retained a counsellor in the business in order that we people could get help quickly, rather than have to wait for eighteen months on a waiting list, for example. And um, what I then did is developed um, an informal back briefing process from uh, from what we now call organisational development, and um, back to me weekly. So every week I would get a back brief on kind of what was actually going on in OD, you know, who was saying what, what the common issues were, where we were having problems. And of course, um, problems can present across the whole spectrum, can't they? It can be a relationship issue. It can be just a health issue. It can be sons or daughters. It can be your own health. It can be your partner's health. You name it. Uh, It can be turning 40, turning 50. What a spectrum of different reasons why people Suddenly struggle. And sometimes it's people that you perhaps don't expect that suddenly begin to change or modify their behavior. And you notice these changes in them. So, through that bank briefing process, what I was able to do is become very organizationally aware all the time. And I'm very, very conscious of the fact that because I only have 150 people, it's much more easily for me to do this. If I had 15,000 people, clearly this would need to have a lot of systems and process behind it. But I just made sure that we that people knew that I knew um, if they were struggling and that it would be okay. And I had an awful lot of uh, check in chats in my office, where um, you know I would ask somebody in, we would talk about a few things, and and effectively, I would just spend some time um, for them to then feel comfortable to reveal that they might be struggling or having issues. So, again, these were all they all took time. the last thing you want is for people to feel they're victim of, an, of a latest initiative. Um, that's the worst thing that you can possibly have. So these things needed to come from the right place. And you know, when I'm encouraging any leaders to perhaps um, to, to think about their well-being strategies as part of their long-term sustainability, actually, as a business, then one of the things is, is, is to say to them that actually um, you have to genuinely care. If you don't genuinely care, then it won't come across that way and people will fail to actually engage with you. Um, so it has to come from a very, very good place. And I guess through my own lived experience of being around people who, you know, with mental health issues for, you know, two decades, at least three decades, it sort of struck me that, that was a it, it was a conversation that was actually quite easy for me.
0: I was I was struck by something you said, which was organizationally aware that you became very organizationally aware. And I'm thinking, even with only 150 employees in your organization, that still takes a lot of time. And that seems to be a very limited resource these days for most CEOs and MDs. So is it something that you think is possible or indeed necessary still for most CEOs, MDs, COOs, to do is to get to know the individuals working for them.
1: Yeah, again, it's a, it's a tricky subject yet again. So what, what I would say is is that it depends what your priorities are for your organisation. So my, my organisation, I have a priority that's just called the long term sustainability for Brother UK. Now, within the long term sustainability for Brother UK, if that's success success for me is fundamentally where we take a strategy plus execution and we multiply it by culture cubed a three on the end of it now the reason why we multiply it by culture is is that you can have as brilliant a strategy as you like you can have the best systems but if the people are not motivated or in a good place to to make all of that work, to make that difference, then fundamentally you, you can quite happily fail or very 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 lacklustre organisation. So you could compare two companies in the same sector with a similar strategy and similar execution. One can be uh, amazingly successful, one not, and people are going, what's the difference? Well, it's the people so fundamentally then for us at, at brother uk why its culture cubed is, is that we effectively say in our culture we just have the th- the following three c's which is a challenge compassion and continuous professional development so uh, we are the epicentre the cornerstones of our culture are built on those things that we must together you know provide interesting work pr- you know respond to the challenge in the external market we are a very fast moving industry nothing ever stands still here we're sort of dealing with mini crises from day to day the bigger stuff from month to month but we must um, if we're going to grow ourselves then we must grow others and that's fundamentally one of my core beliefs here is that to grow ourselves through growing others and that means we we grow ourselves individually as an organization and we grow ourselves culturally and as people and then we can help to grow our customers and those two things are are linked so suddenly then growth is linked to financial growth as well as individuals growth so to get that right then you've got to make sure you have the foundation for people to to want to do that continual professional development and to also accept challenge so how do we build their resiliency skills how do we understand if they are just not in the right place at the moment to help with this or to do that or to turn up as their full selves? so for me the the fundamental is it's it's A key part of our strategy is we get the culture right, then we are going to execute far better against our strategy, which becomes really kind of the strategic objective of why culture is important and why wellbeing is important as part of culture and strategy.
0: We're always talking about the importance of viewing mental health, wellbeing, culture as a strategic initiative um, because you know, from my background coming from oil and gas, I know that as much as it would be nice if companies operated on a moral basis in terms of, oh, let's do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That's not how they're set up. That isn't what um, capitalism is about. It's actually about making profit. And study after study has shown in recent years that investing in your people in ensuring that they are able to turn up to work and do their best and and leave happy and healthy actually pays on the bottom line. So I'm curious to know though, if that's what you've seen, if you have actually seen the theory of um, the culture cubed in practice play out in improved productivity and efficiency at Brother.
1: Yes, without a doubt, because I often get asked this at things like conferences in Ghazi, where you're going to get, a, you might get a room full of cynical CEOs that start demanding R-O-I immediately. And you sort of kind of go, look, if, if you're buried there, then you're probably your start point is the wrong point. Um, and I would, firstly ask you to start looking at things like what's your average length of service, what's your staff turnover, what are your recruitment costs, for example. And uh, normally those sort of types of businesses, they those metrics are much higher than the, my yeah. metrics, for example. So my average length of service across the whole uh, company is 13 years. Wow. Um, and remember, I have a, a, a sales and marketing team which represents a third of the company, which is a traditional high turnover uh, sector. So we so there's where, for example, we generate ROI is because we are keeping hold of people for much longer periods of time, which means we're spending an awful lot less on things like recruitment, and we have a, 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 a queue full of people who want to join us at a time when other businesses are just saying, well, you know, we have got a talent crisis. Um, I haven't got a talent crisis. We haven't had a talent crisis for donkey years, um, and even though Um, You know, about 10% of our workforce after the pandemic, like all other businesses, decided to, you know, move on to different places, new relationships or uh, new employers, new positions, going freelance, whatever. We were able to recruit so quickly uh, back to our business. We got back up to full strength within a matter of months, which uh, for me, um, that's where you start to see things like ROI. And then you can also measure, uh, Ngarzi, things like um, against competitors. You know, what is my average revenue per employee, for example? And uh, we're almost at unicorn level. We're generating some in the region of 550,000 sales per employee in the business, which puts us in the upper quadrant. Of, um, of any of our competitors, so so they're the things really. Is that once you start to respond to those sorts of questions with those sorts of answers, rather than making them soft, it's just the right thing to do. But morally, it is actually, you know, morally we should all be there, you know, there. But actually, do you know what? You'll be a better business, you will. But actually, you'll perform as a better business, which is where all your shareholders are going to be happy. But you've got to make that mental leap to get there, rather than saying, "Well, we'll wait till things break." You know, investing is all about the preventative maintenance, right? And that's all I'm ever interested in. It's a bit like a computer printer. You know, preventative maintenance prevents problems, and uh, just don't wait. If you wait, you're going to end up in all sorts of uh, problems.
0: I'm stealing that. I'm writing it down because it's so good, Phil. Preventative maintenance prevents problems. I love it, and. Um, One question I did have was, was there any resistance? You talked about earlier getting your employees to understand the why behind the change. Did you face any resistance when you you started this shift towards focusing more on them as individuals?
1: Yes, of course. People will always think that there's a hidden agenda with Items like this, and for example, when we did our first round of MH uh, FA training, Mental health first aider training, um, I, I attended that myself and became trained myself. I didn't make that something that others had to do. I went and you know as part of that cohort, uh, trained to, to actually send a message, because sometimes we have to you know send messages, don't we, to to the people? So rather than it just being HR have been asked to. I went along and did it myself and became, you know, announced as one of the trained mental health first aiders in the business. and That was a great piece of learning for me. I generally would encourage every chief executive, please go and get yourself, invest two days in understanding um, through that course, the, the whole spectrum of mental health issues better. And that was a signal. And then what happens is these things just take time. The flywheel needs to turn, and and it takes a bit of a heave, doesn't it, to get it to turn the first time. And then it gets a little easy the second time, and momentum builds. But that momentum only will build with the consistency of effort because in the early days it's hard because people may not believe you. People may not think that this is going to be something which is going to be long-term. What they'll think is, here we go, another flip chart initiative all going to get burned out within two, three months. Let's not engage. And I think the other difficulty actually guys, is that there's a great pressure on organizations, I think, to be perfect. You know, if you read papers like I do or books and you read these idyllic descriptions of how a company should work and how its people should work, that they, in my opinion, are if you're never going to get there, it's like the end of the rainbow because it, there's so much to um, dysfunction in organisations as a result of having people within them. You know, Dysfunction is a word around people dysfunction rather than process. So processes can just go A, B, C, D, E, but, of course, add people in and it can become really, really, really complicated, right? So you can have people in your organisation that, A, are not self-aware and have no intention to want to be self-aware, that don't want to be trained, that think this is all a load of mumbo-jumbo. You've got, of course, early adopters that want to jump at it and just think it's the best thing since sliced bread. You've got your observers that just want to wait and see. So you have to give this time. And, of course, with all of these sorts of initiatives, the one thing people want is, let's invent something new. Let's get it launched. Give me the KPIs week one. has anybody? Have we had a gushing rush of people to come and talk to us? No, because people are waiting and watching. And until they perhaps have their own mini crisis uh, or see somebody else having it, they want to see how the organization responds. And then they want to know whether this is something that's actually going to stand the test of time. Thankfully, we're 10 years on in that journey. So we've got that proven now. And that allows me to have um, wide-ranging conversations with absolutely anybody in our organisation from someone 17 years old right the way up to 65 years old about pretty much anything because we've developed an environment where people kind of are okay to have that conversation. But would I say I've got 100% adherence to that policy? No, because there are still some people here that perhaps want those things to remain private, that they don't want the business to sort of know all the ins and outs of their life. When we do, we can help and and hopefully support. But if your choice is you don't want it, then actually we won't force it on you. So in the main, um, things work and they work well. But equally, uh, not everybody wants to engage with your health and wellbeing initiative.
0: But that's okay.
1: And that's totally okay.
0: Yeah. It's just when they need you, they know where to find you and they trust that you'll be there because you've created those two words that I love, psychological safety at Brother UK. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And Brother is obviously part of a global organization, much bigger. How has the global organization responded to the changes that you've made in the culture in the UK?
1: Yeah, it's very interesting in Gaza because when you work for a multinational group, of course, we have uh, cross-cultural uh, things to deal with. So, um, I sit on a strategic working group with uh, in Europe with uh, you know twelve other managing directors fundamentally. So, I get to see how culture works uh, at a society level as well as a company level within that society. Then we've got you know uh, an APAC, you know Asia Pacific region, USA, Japan, and Europe. So there's a real, real mix of um, of culture, cultures in our organisation, uh, at a human level, which means that it's very difficult to have an overarching. Culture within the company, which, for example, be consistent with some of the things that I'm doing day to day. But in Japan, which is where our, our company is based and, and headquartered out of, that's where ultimately we were founded. There's a real desire now to kind of up our global game on all elements like this, including DEI, as well as you know, mental health awareness and support. Um, so, uh, have we made is a whole organization at the same level as Brother UK? I think the answer to that is no, um, because the, the, the culturally things are just so different. You know, comparing American culture, for example, to UK culture in terms of work is a very, very different thing, isn't it? You know, remuneration is different. Um, employee benefits are different. Attitudes to work are different. So uh, but the main thing is, is that the business wants to make progress. And I think that's the key thing. So in my little outpost called Brother UK, I, I think I'm doing a lot of the. Um, Piloting and uh, and testing of what works and what doesn't work in order that that can be taken as good practice and deployed across the group.
0: Change comes in increments, doesn't it? So that's fantastic please. Something that our audience, who a lot of whom are in human resources, struggle to do is to persuade their CEOs and CFOs to invest in these well-being measures, uh, at least in any significant way that would make a real difference to the people on the ground. So they can get talks and workshops, but to invest in strategic initiatives such as training programs, leadership development is a is a much bigger struggle. Do you have any advice on how they can best get um, their the remainder of the SLT on board with the need to do that?
1: Yeah, it's so difficult. And it just underlines how complex organizations can be because you've got all of these personalities with differing views all the time and this creates this sort of constant conversation around what will work what won't work and we're busy doing this and the pressure of the numbers and the quarter end and why are we doing that now when we've got this other more important project on it it's you're constantly competing for time and attention and, you know, one of the things I realise, and, and I think you know, I've met lots of uh, HR and OD professionals, you have, you know, have my utter respect to anybody who is a lead in that area, because it's a very, very difficult part of the business to be in, in my opinion, very complex. Um, it's not just about payroll and, uh, you know, transactional HR anymore. It's about strategic HR, strategic um Know, linking in people to the strategic objectives of the business, as we, we've already talked about. So whenever I've gone to conferences or perhaps been you know, been on a stage or done a talk, you know, I'm always sort of inundated with HR professionals saying, "God, I wish you would have a word with my CEO or MD." Yeah. There's a real sense of frustration, and and I really get that. So you know, kind of the question you is. How can we begin to enlighten those individuals and educate them that actually, if only they'd listen, you know, a lot of the things that perhaps that sometimes frustrate them about their business in terms of productivity or the numbers or health, you know, sickness days, sickness absence, all of these things, that this is really one of the real big things that they could do to resolve all of those issues, oh, then, and by the way, you're then going to start recruiting even better people to the organisation, oh, and they're going to stay longer, and all of those things, all the stuff that uh, you and Obehi have been talking about you know, on your podcast, you know, you, you've covered these issues time and time again. To me, it just seems blindingly obvious. It's blindingly obvious that, that if you've got you know, happy people um, doing great work in a happy workplace, you know you're pretty unstoppable so it's kind of like why wouldn't you want that well you might only want it because probably you might be more interested in just running an organization based on power domains or you know hierarchical structures whereas i think we've got to a place now where we we want to be much more about you know influence less hierarchy um, and more about working as teams fundamentally much more dynamically so we're in that sort of space and therefore a lot of the hierarchies that perhaps existed a brother uh, before I it became MD. You know, we broke all of those things down. But again, that took some years. Again, to build trust with people. So, you know, my only uh, advice can be is just keep chipping away. Just keep chipping away. Find somebody that on the SLT that can speak for you. If if you're not on that SLT, then find somebody that can speak for you to bring it to that board level and then start to frame that in much more commercial terms rather than soft terms.
0: Yeah, Persuade with facts, not feelings, in other words. We're speaking the same language. Love it. So my final question for you, and it's the signature question that I'm asking all my interview guests, is... As a fellow well-being rebel, what's the one change that you'd like to see implemented in workplace well-being?:
1: Well actually, it might be linked to the last question that, that we spoke about just then is I, I would love um, to make it mandatory for, uh, for chief executives uh, to actually become qualified in the area of well-being. so in the same way that you might go away and uh, become a chartered. Accountant or a chartered financial director, then then why don't we ask for directors to be chartered in the world of wellbeing, so that they genuinely begin to be professionally uh, educated and qualified as to why uh, this topic is so important.
0: I think that would make such a big difference in persuading CEOs that investing in people, investing in culture, is necessary and fundamental to success so uh, yeah I'd second that Phil thank you for your time no problem thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion if you liked what you just heard please share it with your colleagues follow us on LinkedIn the link will be in the show notes and generally show us some love we want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.